We marvel in your grace, our Lord, and we long to know that grace that we have received to know you at ever deeper levels, that we may marvel all the more in the grace that has been shown to us and accomplished for us in Christ and the grace that was intended to us and granted to us uh, from all eternity, really, who know you. May we now, as we look at one crucial and central aspect of the mercy that you've shown to us in Christ and by your Spirit, that truth of the new birth and of regeneration, we ask that you would open our heart, illumine our minds to uh, taste the glory of this truth that, uh, in a new way, maybe some for the first time, we would pray. Be with us, empower your word, give us ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, having finished uh, Matthew chapter 23 uh, a few weeks ago, uh, and knowing that it would be a while until we begin Matthew chapter 24, probably sometime in June, maybe in July, uh, because we will take a break looking at the book of Titus, which will begin next week under the ministry of uh, Pastor Reardon, I thought what might be helpful to single out from Matthew 23 and Jesus' indictment of the leaders there, what would be a topic that flows out of the, what we've already seen that would be helpful to it for us to gain a bit more clarity on. And the one thing that stood out mostly was this idea of regeneration or this idea of being born again or receiving the life of God. Now the identification of being a born-again Christian is not uncommon in our pseudo-Christian culture or our Christian culture at large in America. However, it is a statement that's been and is often grossly misunderstood, misused, and therefore has become in many ways almost meaningless. If you say that to somebody, it is a non-statement. It has no content really behind it that is understood by those we speak to. For example, a Barna poll recently records that 25% of professing born-again Christians believe that eventually all will be saved. In other words, it's the heresy of universalism. Another 43% believe that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. In another survey, over half of those professing to be born-again believers in Christ believe that in some way, some fashion, in some form, that good works contribute to our salvation. Clearly, there is a great disconnect between the biblical teaching of what it means to be born again and how that word and concept is understood in our common Christian culture. Yet, the idea of the new birth stands at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. If you have not experienced the reality of the new birth, if you have not been born again, if you have not been regenerated by the Spirit of God, then you are not a Christian. And so it's imperative that we understand what it is that Jesus teaches us about the new birth. For indeed, Scripture also teaches us that there are only two kinds of children in the world. Those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Those who are children of the blessings to come inherited in Christ and those who are children of wrath. So it's essential then to understand what Jesus means when he says that you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. John chapter 3. 
And perhaps more importantly, it's crucial to understand how do we identify these marks of life and of regeneration in our own hearts. Now there is no way we'll be able to cover everything that there is to say about this glorious truth, and particularly not in one message. But my hope is to give some overview of this great reality of the new birth to increase the clarity of our understanding and to lay hold of these realities that are manifest in a regenerate heart so that we can rejoice in God for what He's done in our hearts or realize that this is a work yet to be done and we might seek Him to do it. Now the technical or theological term, I've already mentioned it, describing the new birth is regeneration. Regeneration. However, regeneration is not a term that's used only in theology books or only in technical jargon. It is a term that is used also in Scripture. In fact, it is used two times in the Bible. Once in Matthew 19.28 and once in Titus 3.5. Let's look at these briefly. Look over at Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Now, we've covered this before as we've been going through Matthew, but I want to briefly remind us of... Jesus' use of the term here. He says, beginning in verse 27, Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration or in the new birth, that's really what the term has the idea of being born again, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So in other words, Jesus is here revealing to them that there is a time that is coming that's going to be very different than the world you know now. It will undergo this present earth a transformation. Currently, the world is under the curse of sin. In the language of Paul, all of the earth is groaning waiting for the release that is to come with the sons of God, the revelation of the sons of God in Romans chapter 8. When Christ returns in power and glory, we've sung of it this morning, and sits on the throne of David on a rejuvenated earth, the earth is going to experience a great change where the effects of sin is going to be greatly diminished. And it's going to happen for a period of time in anticipation of the final and ultimate end, ultimate, ultimate end of regeneration in God's redemptive plan in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. This isn't our main point. But to understand what he says here, I want to just direct your attention back to a couple of passages. You, you can follow along. You don't have to turn there. There's a few passages in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, he anticipates this time. He also does in chapter 66, 22, but we're going to focus here on chapter 65. He says in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. He's speaking of the future. He's speaking of a time that is yet to come. A time that is yet to be experienced either by his people or by anyone on the earth. And he describes this time. He says, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. 
No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. And he continues on and speaks of a changed relationship in the animal creation and human beings with the animal creation that now only knows the effects of sin. But a day is coming when the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food and they will do no evil or harm in all of my holy mountain. So that's one example of many examples of the picture of these prophets of a time when there will be a regeneration. There will be a new earth and the effects of sin will be greatly diminished and there will be harmony among man and the animal creation. There will be harmony generally among man and man. There will, in this time anticipating the ultimate state, be death. There will be a span of life, a length of time that someone will be expected to live. There will be youth. There will be children playing, as he says in Isaiah 11, next to the hole of a serpent and not fear, and yet they will be children nonetheless. So Jesus is in Matthew 19, 28, anticipating this time. It is a time in which the curse of sin has been greatly diminished and the great changes come about on the earth. Let's look at the second use of the term in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Now here is a different use of the term He's not talking here about the cosmic changes that are going to come about by the sovereign hand of God in the future, but about the actual changes that have already been accomplished by Christ and by the Spirit in the individual. Of course, this time is also anticipating a greater experience of these realities, and yet they are realities tasted here. In Titus chapter 3, he says this, beginning in verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, same term, and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Again, here he's speaking of what happens In the individual, in the individual. What the Spirit of God does in salvation in the believing sinner, or inside the sinner. And it's described as the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So this regeneration includes a spiritual cleansing that removes original filth, corruption, and the power of sin. It describes a spiritual change that enables someone to live exactly the opposite of what would have described someone who is unregenerate or un, who has not experienced this. Which he describes in verse 3, he says, We once were foolish ourselves, foolish according to God, foolish in relation to salvation, righteousness and true wisdom. We were disobedient to the word of God, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And he says, that's what you were, but regeneration brought about something new. You live in a new reality, those who have been born again. 
So again, regeneration involves spiritual cleansing, being brought into a condition in which purity, faith, and obedience is not only possible, but is a reality in the life of a true Christian. And it is something that comes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it is directly attached to a sovereign display of God's mercy and God's love. He says at the beginning of verse 5, I'll repeat, it's not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So, those are the two uses of the term. But while it's, the term is used only twice, uh, the idea of regeneration, the idea of this new life that we have in Christ is throughout Scripture and throughout the New Testament. It's described in a variety of ways. Listen as I re- read just a few of them. Others could be added, but these are some of the primary texts. Let me read them. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 Paul speaks of a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new. In Ephesians 2.5, he speaks of being made alive together with Christ. In Ephesians 4.24, he speaks of being created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We looked at this last week. In 1 Peter 1.3, he speaks of being born again. In Romans 6.13, a different term there, however, in 1 Peter 1.3. In Romans 6.13, he speaks of being brought from death to life. In 2 Peter 1.4, he speaks of becoming partakers of the divine nature. In Colossians 1.3, he speaks of being that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a transformation. It's a new a sphere of reality, of spiritual reality that God brings a person into. So then what would briefly be a definition? Well, in order to define it, let me say that it has been defined in two primary ways throughout the history of the church. One is in a broad way, in a very broad way. And this broad way includes not only the very act of regeneration by God, but it also came to include all of the things then that flowed out of regeneration. So regeneration, in other words, the gift of new life, the implanting of the principle of new life in the sinner, and all that flowed out of that in terms of faith and repentance and conversion and sanctification were all grouped together under the term regeneration. However, that grouping together was problematic particularly as what developed in Roman Catholic theology of associating regeneration and justification and making those two things rather than something distinct. In other words, salvation or justification was something that God was doing in us as he, regenerated, as he completed this work of regeneration rather than being based on the completed work of Christ. But then there is the narrow way to define it, and that's how we usually speak of it, and how we'll use the term. It is to speak of that initial act of God where he implants spiritual life in a dead sinner. That sovereign act of God wherein he implants spiritual life into the heart of a dead sinner. That is what regeneration is in its main. Now with that as an introduction, let us turn to what is one of the most commonly uh, referenced passages in terms to this great reality. And that is John chapter 3. So turn over there briefly with me. John chapter 3. You're well familiar with this passage. We're going to look at it briefly and see what flows out of it in terms of our understanding of this great truth of regeneration. John chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. 
You know the scene well, verse 1, a man of the Pharisees. Now this is, actually we should just note a very precious truth. I mean, we just got done with weeks of seeing Jesus uh, give this great judgment on, and condemnation on this leadership of the nation of Israel. And then out of that group, while they were largely all uh, falling under that condemnation, there was yet God working in the heart of some. And Nicodemus is a wonderful picture of that. Although he's not yet converted at this point, he comes to Jesus at night. And he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's coming with a sense of sincerity. He's coming to learn from Jesus about the kingdom of God, which has apparently been intriguing him. And here he is, as he calls him later, a leader of the Jews. And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he cuts right through all of the fluff and he gets right to the heart of the matter. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And you need to come to terms with that reality. So he says, Again, that in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now there is a great deal that we could say about this passage, but we're not going to get into the details, but I do want to highlight for you at least four points. At least four points that flow out of this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus in relation to regeneration. The first is this. Regeneration is necessary. New birth is necessary. We've already mentioned that. Let's mention it again. New birth is necessary for salvation. Notice what he says in verse 3. He cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5. He cannot Enter the kingdom of God. You can neither see or spiritually perceive the kingdom of God, nor can you enter the kingdom of God and meet the qualifications of faith and repentance unless you've known the reality of the new birth. Now, one of the places this is most clearly seen in terms of the necessity of the new birth is Ephesians chapter 2. Passage that we're familiar with, let me remind us of it, in chapter or in verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul simply states the condition of all men outside of the saving grace of Christ. And he refers to us as dead. As dead. And the basic idea of death is the inability to respond to your environment. The inability to respond, to perceive, and therefore rightly respond to your environment. In this term of spiritual death, it is the inability to perceive the truth of God because of the effects of sin and respond to Him rightly. So he describes this and he describes the completeness of this death, this condition, apart from the work of regeneration. And he says, first of all, that it affects, look at verse 3, verse 3. He says that it affects then, sin does, the quality of this spiritual death is that it deadens our affections and it causes the unregenerate sinner to live, he says, in the lust of our flesh. The lust of our flesh. It is corrupt desires. Desires that are not in accordance with the will of God and towards righteousness. That is what defines spiritual death. Secondly, 
It corrupts the will of man. Notice what else he says. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The will is held captive to these sinful desires. Paul describes it in another way as enslaved to sin. Indulging these desires that are contrary to the will of God. That is spiritual death. Notice what he says next. It affects the mind. The mind of man. When he says... and. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. A corrupt mind whose thinking, whose thoughts, whose reasonings are corrupted by the effects of sin. And all of these together in the affections, in the will, and in the mind. All experiencing the corrupting effects of sin that renders an individual apart from the grace of God as dead to him. And there's no other way to describe it. We won't take the time, but... Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 19 unfolds this even more. This is the idea of total depravity. Total depravity. And it just means that in the completeness of who we are as human beings made in the image of God, sin has affected every part. That's what it means. Not in the same way, not in the same degree to every person. Obviously, some are worse than others. But it does mean that everybody totally is affected by sin and falls under this condition of spiritual death. Now, Paul then, of course, is describing the condition of all outside of Christ. We should not be surprised at this. Even back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, God promised that there would be death. And no later than Genesis 6, 5, we realize that the thoughts and the intentions of heart and the heart of man are always corrupt, and therefore he had to destroy the whole earth. He repeats the same thing after the flood. The condition in the heart of man has not changed. So... Something, a work of God then becomes necessary. And notice one other thing, that in relation to religion, Jesus is saying this to not an openly immoral person, not to someone who's openly hostile to the world and to religion and to God. He's saying this to a religious leader. So Jesus is saying, look, whether you be irreligious and the most rank kind of pagan, or whether you be the most moral and fastidious religious Jew, you cannot enter the kingdom of God until you have experienced this reality of the new birth. So religion is not how it's gained. It has to be something that comes from God. Now conversely then, the change that God brings in regeneration is equally comprehensive. It corresponds to all of the things that are corrupted by sin. God sets free in the reality of regeneration. Let me mention these just briefly. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, that we have been made alive together with Christ and are now to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, which includes the will. In Ephesians 4.22, it's laying aside the old self and putting on the new self. And the will has been made enabled to do that. Able to do that. An unbeliever cannot. It is impossible to please God for an unbeliever to please God. They're hostile in their mind, Romans 8. In the mind of the regenerate person, he says in Ephesians 4.23, has been renewed in the spirit. In the spirit of our mind, there is now a mind that can perceive, love, taste, and respond to spiritual truth. And in the affections. The one who is a new man has been created, he says in Ephesians 4.24, in holiness and righteousness and truth. In other words, all of the new loves and the things that satisfy the regenerate person are have to do with holiness, have to do with righteousness, and have to do with the truth of God. 
That is the affections. It is the affections. And a matter of fact, he ends the letter by addressing those true believers among the church as all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an effect of regeneration. Let's note secondly then. First of all, regeneration is a necessity. Secondly, regeneration is both seen and anticipated in the Old Testament. Both seen and anticipated in the Old Testament. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10 of John chapter 3. Nicodemus had said in verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And Jesus did not say, oh, Nicodemus, I understand. This is, this is all new. I get it. Let me explain it to you. No, he says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? In other words, Nicodemus, there is no excuse for your ignorance. You're a teacher of Israel. You know the Old Testament. So the Old Testament saint understood that the base level of the heart was depraved. It was in and a guilt and a corruption inherited from our fathers. Again, let me just briefly, very briefly illustrate this because I want to hurry up and get to the end. But Psalm 51, David says this, much repeated, but one of the clearest statements, although there are many, many statements. But he says in verse 5, and I think we mentioned this last week, in his prayer of repentance, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. At the very base level of my existence, which begin at conception within the womb of my mother, I was a sinner. I was guilty. I was guilty. And there needs to be then a cleansing. There needs to be a change. There needs to be something that happens then at that level. That something is mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let me just mention it to you, verse 6. He says, moreover, Moses speaking to Israel, he says, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul so that you may live. Now, the, the, the sign of circumcision was powerful. Very powerful. And at its heart, its most base level in the sign was showing that, look, corruption and depravity and sin begins at the very entry point of life. The male organ, sexual organ, where life begins with the seed. Even at that point, there needs to be a cleansing of the flesh. You are corrupt. You need redemption at the most basic level of your existence. And so he uses that imagery of circumcision and he replies it to the heart. And he says at the most basic level of who you are as a sinner, there needs to be a cleansing. There needs to be a removal of what is evil with a replacement with what is righteous and with what is holy and with what is good. That's why David prayed later in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. This is a powerful statement. God, you must do this. You must create in me a clean heart at the very base level of my affections and my will and my mind and my desire. And he asked that of the Lord. Let me mention one other passage to you. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. And I'll just mention a couple of verses here. But this was then anticipated also by 
the prophets. He says, then I will speak, uh, sprinkle clean water on you. This is God anticipating this future reality that is going to mark his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and remove from and, remo- and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. In other words, there was... A spiritual reality that not only did the Old Testament saint know, but there was a greater expression of this reality that was anticipated by them in this way. One, it would be attended with a new powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit within the believer. And secondly, it would be something true of all of Israel, all of God's people. And so they anticipated this. And I should note, just as a side note here, that it would be true of all of the nation of Israel with Christ ruling over them on the throne in the land, which he says in verses chapter 37. But the point is, is that there is something that was anticipated, and he should have known that. And this has always been a reality. Number three, notice this about regeneration. It is necessary, it was in the Old Testament, and third, it is a sovereign work of God by the Holy Spirit. He says... Several times in John chapter 3, you must be born of the Spirit. Must be born of the Spirit. Which is not the human Spirit here, but it is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Because of the completeness of of sin's effect on us, regeneration is, if you want a fancy term, a monergistic work of God. That means God alone is acting. That's what it means. That God alone is acting. Now understand this, and we'll look at it closely. A little more closely. God alone acts in regeneration. The sinner is utterly passive. God alone acts in regeneration. The sinner is passive. It's something God does to the sinner. It is not something that we participate in in that sense. We receive it from God. We do nothing to get it from Him. To get it from Him. Notice what He says. And notice carefully the language. Truly, truly, in verse 3 of John 3... I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he talks about something we'll mention in a bit. The wind blowing where it wishes. And you see the effects of this. And you know when you see the effects, that one has been then born by the Spirit. In other words, there is a progression. First, there is the granting of new life. Secondly, there is the expression of that life in faith, in believing, and in following after Christ. It is something that is instantaneous, and it's something which the sinner is completely passive. Let me give you one other text. Just listen. John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received them, to them, him, them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And who are these people who are believing in his name? Those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But of God. Let me note a fourth point. It's necessary, it's seen in the Old Testament. It's a sovereign work of God. And also flowing out of that is number four. Regeneration then precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. I've already mentioned this, but faith is the result of regeneration. 
The result of the faith, or the result of regeneration is the faith, he's saying to you, Nicodemus, that will help you to see me as I am, to believe in me, and then to enter into the kingdom of God. Regeneration is being brought into the reality of new life. Faith is the first exercise of this life. Notice again, we just mentioned it in John chapter 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So as everyone who is born of the Spirit. What is the point of that illustration? What is the point of it? Well, he's simply saying this. If you walk outside during the day, you feel the wind on your skin, you see the leaves blowing, you see all of these effects of the wind that is blowing. You don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going, but you see the effects and you know, therefore, that it is blowing because you see what it produces. He says, in the same way, that's how it is when someone is born of the Spirit. How do you know if someone has been born again? Well, you see the effects of it. You see them believing in Christ. You see them following Him. You see them repenting. You see them loving righteousness and so forth. You see the effects of it which we'll mention later. Now, we don't have time to turn there, but John 6, 44 through 45 says the same thing. What a wonderful passage that explains this very same truth. Now, this is important to mention because sometimes if you look at doctrinal statements as churches, they make regeneration the result of faith, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Now, I want to know two other things that flow out of this. One, this has to do with what you've sometimes heard of as irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Now sometimes that is a mischaractered doctrine that says that God brings the sinner kicking and screaming into his kingdom. Well, in fact, God does no such thing. He brings no sinner kicking and screaming into his kingdom. He does not do that, and that is not what the doctrine is stating. It simply refers to the certainty that the one whom God regenerates will respond to the call of the gospel in sincere faith, and both are gifts of God. In other words, faith is not forced, but it is the natural and necessary expression of new life, and it is, in this sense, irresistible when that life is presented. That's what irresistible grace speaks of. Notice thirdly on this point, briefly, there is the central role of the Word of God. This work is immediately attached or intimately attached to the Word of God. We read it last week. The living, you are brought forth by the living and abiding Word of God. Or in other words, born again by the living and abiding Word of God. James says the same thing in that you were brought forth by that same Word. Now, with that as a very brief explanation, let me just next look at a couple of examples. What are a couple of examples? And I'm going to give you two categories. One from Scripture and then two that are personal. One from Scripture and then two that are personal. Let's look briefly at the book of Acts. Now again, there's a lot of places we could go. I'm only going to mention a few. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. You're familiar with Acts chapter 10. It is that great and glorious transition where God calls Peter to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he sends him to the house of a God-fearing Gentile 
the house of Cornelius. The house of Cornelius. So Peter shows up at Cornelius' house and he preaches to him the gospel. He preaches to him Jesus of Nazareth. And what happens in verse 44? While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And God gave in this particular instance the sign of tongues in verse 46, because of the mon- mon- uh, monumental occasion of the gospel being now brought to the Gentiles. But the point is, is that they all believed. They all believed because God has sent His Spirit and had fallen on them through the ministry of the Word. Look at Acts 13, verse 48. Verse 48, again, the gospel is being preached. And it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And you might stop right there and say, who received it to rejoice and to glorify the word of the Lord? Well, he answers that. As many as had been appointed to eternal life and believed. In other words, whom God had sovereignly opened their heart to receive the words, to respond to them in faith, and have the consequent joy and fruit of believing. Let's notice just one other passage. Really a beautiful passage we're familiar with. 16, uh, Acts 16 verse 14. It says there was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira. A seller of purple fabrics. A worshiper of God. And she was listening to the gospel by Paul. And the Lord did what? He opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's a beautiful picture. God had granted her life. In granting her life, she was able to hear, able to receive, and necessarily then responded to the things that were being spoken of by the Apostle Paul. This is throughout, throughout Scripture. I can't resist just one other, one other passage I'll mention. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, he tells, he exhorts them, he says to this church, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you, and this is important because the call of God that is effective involves the work of regeneration, and that's what happened here. He says that the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. In you who believe. So the Spirit of God comes and He gives life, and the fruit of that life is believing is responding to the message of Christ, embracing Him in all of His person and His work. Let me give a couple of personal examples. The first one is from C.S. Lewis. You're probably familiar with C.S. Lewis. He was an intellectual of the last century, an Oxford-trained scholar. He gave us Chronicles of Narnia and many other wonderful works that are still bearing impact in people's lives today. C.S. Lewis records his Uh, salvation or the time when he experienced this new life in these words shortly he says I know very well when but hardly how the final step was taken in other words he had been hearing about the gospel he had been hearing about Christianity but he had not yet come all the way he says I was driven to Whipsnad one sunny morning when we set out I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and when we reached the zoo I did Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought nor in great emotion. 
end quote. It was a silent. It was like God opening the heart of Lydia. He's going along and God had granted him then the life that enabled him to take everything that he had heard and to respond to it in faith. It was no great emotion, no great thought in this instance, although that's not always the case, but I would say this as a footnote. While C.S. Lewis was an atheist before he was a Christian, this experience nonetheless illustrates in some ways what happens to a child of God or a child who grows up in a Christian home and is saved young. There may not be a dramatic moment. Sometimes it's something totally imperceptible. There simply comes a point in their life where they begin to experience in a real way the realities of the gospel. They begin to experience in a new level the conviction of their own sin and to hate it. They begin to be drawn to Christ for forgiveness and have a sincere desire to be near Him and to serve Him in this world. In other words, the actual moment of regeneration doesn't necessarily come with signs and whistles and bells, but it is a work that God does and then the fruits of that are seen in the life of the child. Sometimes the experiences are more dramatic. Now some of you will, in your own life, uh, understand this and have a similar experience. But in my life, the, the work of God was much more dramatic. It came at a very distinct moment with dramatic changes. I can very early remember when God had called me to himself, looking back at my life, I was in my young 20s, looking back at my life and feeling a total disconnect with the person that I saw. A total disconnect. I did not understand the desires, the goals, the thinking, or the decisions that I had made up to that point. It was as if I was looking at someone with whom I was totally unfamiliar. I remember very distinctly that change. And then after that, changes immediately began to appear in my life. And they were not merely external changes, but they flowed from the depth of my soul. In other words, I began to recognize sin in my life and didn't want to do it. I had new desires. I would have rather read the Word of God, listen to a sermon, and so forth. All of a sudden, the sin that I had so enjoyed before that moment presented a conflict within me and I realized that it did not promote the glory of God nor please Him and I therefore did not want to do it. There was a change. I didn't understand what was happening. I only knew that that my life was going in a different direction. That I wanted to please Him. I wanted to know Him. I wanted to serve Him. I wanted to have fellowship with Him and I did not want to dishonor Him with my life. God did that. God did that. Now let me make one little point uh, on the same here along these lines. I'm going to make this very briefly. And then we'll get to the fruit of it. And it is simply that this. That we also want to be careful to distinguish the work of regeneration, which is a work of the Spirit, from the second ministry of the Spirit, which is His indwelling of believers. Those are two distinct works by the Spirit of God. What is the relationship then between the Holy Spirit and the regenerate person? I think I will uh, state it just simply in this, that in the experience of regeneration, the Holy Spirit produces in us this life, this new principle of life by which we are open to the life of God and the knowledge of God and we respond to Him. And then within the regenerate person, the Spirit of God indwells them, enabling and energizing and growing this life that was given to them. And so he convicts of sin, he assures of salvation, he enables a person to believe and to obey and to serve, he illuminates scripture, he unfolds the glories of God in Christ as revealed in the word of God to greater and greater levels. He produces the fruit in a genuine believer of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth, gentleness and self-control. 
Now, then, in the final analysis, we must ask ourselves, how can I be sure that I have been regenerated? How can I be sure that I've been regenerated? And what are the evidences of regeneration? Well, let me just say, we can say it's not speaking in tongues. It's not doing miracles. It's not some ecstatic experience. All of those things can be done, as Scripture warns us, in a totally unregenerate heart. So what are then the, the evidences of being born again? And I think the best place to understand this would be the book of 1 John. So turn there with me and we'll spend our last few minutes there in the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John. What a wonderful book it is that God has given us that we might know the realities of the new birth in our life and discern them and rejoice then in what God has done or be warned. The first is this. I'm going to summarize it under, I think, I think it's four or five points. The first one is this. What is the evidence of regeneration when your life is characterized by a love for righteousness and an opposition to sin? It's pretty basic. When your life is characterized by a love for righteousness because of faith in Christ and an opposition to sin in your life. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Is born of Him. This is the first part of that. If someone has been born again, there is a love for righteousness. To be born of God is to share His life. And the most basic expression of that is to love the things that God loves. It is completely incongruous for a person to say that they are born of God, have His life and His Spirit in them, and yet not love the things that God loves. It doesn't make any sense. It's an absurd thought. And yet many today in our Christian culture are totally comfortable with that idea of identifying themselves as born-again believers and yet not loving the things that God loves, not loving righteousness. And John picks up on the absurdity of this. Now, it's somewhat hidden in an English translation. You might have it as little notes uh, in the side of your margins of some of your Bibles. But he picks up on this. In the first year use of the term know, he uses a root which has the general idea of knowing something to be true as a fact. It's, like, it's interchangeable somewhat, but generally the term is used to emphasize what is known as a point of fact. As a point of I know that the sky is blue, etc. Here he says, if you know that he is righteous, if you know that, if you ascend to that, if you assert that fact, he says, then you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And the term that he uses, which is behind that second word, know, is to say it is to perceive that fact. It is to perceive it. It has the general idea of to know by experience. And so his point is, is if you believe and acknowledge the truth that God is, righteousness, is righteous, then you understand as a fact that his children will also love righteousness. They will want to conform and reflect his character. This is basic. This is basic. And notice what he says. It's everyone then who practices righteousness is born of him. In other words, it will be evident in your life. It'll be evident in your life. I'll never forget reading a book uh, long ago. Someone who was taking the position of what is known as non-lordship. And they were saying that you will definitely have fruit if you are born again. But then they said you might never see that fruit. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what he says here. The one who practices righteousness. This is a visible and an evident change in reality in a person's life. And if that light isn't there at some level, then he says there's no reason to believe that that person has been born again. 
And notice also here that he says that righteousness then is the result of being born again. It is not the cause of it. Now that has a very significant implication and it's this. It means then that that righteousness flows out of a transformed heart. In other words, righteousness flows out of the deepest reality of who that person is. They're a new creature. The truest thing about them is that they love righteousness and they hate sin. That's the truest thing about them. They want to reflect his character. He says this in a similar fashion in chapter two or verse 2 of chapter 3. Beloved, we are children of God. In other words, been born of him. We don't know what yet we're going to be, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So to be born again is at its most base level to love Christ and desire to be like him and to seek purity in your thoughts, in your attitude, and in your life. If that doesn't define you, then John would say, examine yourself. The second part of it then is that it is to hate and oppose sin in your life. Hate and oppose sin in your life. Look down at verse 9 of chapter 3. No one who is born of God or has been born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. The seed here could be either the Holy Spirit, the new nature, or some take it to be the word of God. The new nature is most likely here. And the point, however, is this. That when somebody who has experienced this work of the Spirit of God in their life, has an experience of new life in them, will not be characterized by sin. That's what he's saying at its most basic level. Why? Because here's the point. The new nature conflicts with sin in you. There is a conflict within every regenerate believer with what they desire to be and what they know to be true and the sin that they still have remaining in them. Every believer has this conflict. There are two things going on in them, the new man that they are and the flesh that they're still housed in at this point, which has the effects of lingering sin. Effects of lingering sin. And John states this in black and white terms. Look at what he says. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. In verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God has appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Again, there are only two realities. Those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. And what marks this reality is one's attitude towards righteousness and towards the truth. The regenerate believer loves it and hates sin. The unregenerate believer is comfortable with sin in their heart. That's like the Pharisees, right? They could maintain it on the outside. They had no inner conflict with sin in their heart. They could lust and covet and desire until the cows came home and they were fine with that as long as they maintained an external veneer of righteousness and a veneer of morality. Jesus says that is not a regenerate heart. A regenerate heart hates that and fights sin. Judas did not fight sin in his life. That's why ultimately he fell. He lost the battle with sin. We have tragic stories in our lives, and you have the same, of those who had a life that had some model of righteousness, and then they ended up falling away. And what is the key difference? Well, one of the main key differences is that somewhere along the way, or perhaps never, were they dealing with sin in their heart. 
And so Jesus, or here the writer of John says, those who are born again will fight sin in their heart. It's not that we're perfect, but it is that we will resist sin. Now I want to, I'm going to have to just briefly mention the other points, but I do want to mention this because I think it's very important. Look back over at chapter 1. He defines then also the regenerate person in this way. God is light, in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. And then He says in verse 9, if we confess our sin, and again, that is a regenerate believer, has the, the sense of sin within them. It's at conflict with this new nature. And they're constantly then, as a pattern of their life, wanting to confess this sin to God and be renewed and be restored and to experience freshly the reality of having been forgiven of their sin through the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Christ. If you are not confessing sin in your life as a pattern, then this is something you would want to examine. If you are, then you should be very encouraged that the Spirit of God has done a work in your life. Now, here's what I want to mention because this can be misunderstood at a basic level. Regarding confession of sin, this is somewhat of a footnote. Many people have a wrong view of what he's saying here, and definitely a wrong practice of what he's saying here. Confession of sin is not simply admitting that what you did was wrong. If your confession of sin does not go beyond coming before God and saying, I did this wrong, I did this wrong, and I did this wrong, you've not really fulfilled what, Jesus, or what John is saying here. You've not really fulfilled it. Judas did that, didn't he? Judas confessed his sin with specificity, and he knew it was wrong. Unbelievers all the time will acknowledge that they're sinners. That's no great spiritual feat to acknowledge sin. It's patently obvious, even to those who are unregenerate at some level. So what does he mean here? Well, the idea of confession is to say the same thing about your sin that God does. And that means saying more than just that it's sin. It's saying it's bad, it's wrong, and it's hateful, and it's something I want to get rid of in my life. In other words, when we truly confess our sin, it is attended with the reality to oppose that sin in our life, to stop doing it, to fight it, to simply acknowledge and admit what we do wrong and then get up and go on about our lives as if everything is fine now is not the idea. It is to confess that sin as something that is wrong before God, is corrupting, and that you want to be rid of in your life. So the first evidence then is that there will be a love for righteousness and an opposition to sin in your life. And let me just make this point. It's very clarifying in my own mind. It means that you will oppose sin in you much more than you'll... uh, You'll hate the sin in you much more than you'll hate the sin outside of you. You will have a much more sensitive reaction to the sin in your own heart than other people's sin in your, that are around your life. That's where humility comes from. Secondly, then, a regenerate heart. And I'm going to just mention these for time's sake. Second is this. You will have a distinct and an evident love for believers that flows from understanding God's redeeming love for you in Christ. There will be a distinct love for believers Uh, Verse 7 of chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows Him. And it's not that we first loved God, it is that He first loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It means that you will have a basic love for believers that is distinct. 
and it will flow out of the reality of the shared experience of having experienced God's grace in Christ. In Christ. This is one of the chief evidences you can read through 1 John chapter 2, chapter 3 and see it for yourself. And I want to make a footnote here also. It's difficult then to understand how a regenerate believer can remove themselves from fellowship with God's people without a great sense of spiritual loss. Without a great sense of lacking something spiritually. A true regenerate believer has something basic to the sharing of the Spirit of God to be with other Christians. That's the unity that Paul speaks of in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Here he puts it under the rubric of love. Of love. That a believer loves to hear God's truth and be with God's people. If a person can take or leave church attendance as if it doesn't really matter, it makes no effect in their life, or if they can take or leave fellowship with God's people, it's difficult to see how this expresses the reality of new life. It's difficult to see that. A person who has been born again wants to be with God's people. We don't always perfectly have these desires at the same strength we would want them, but it is a basic reality of a regenerate believer's life. Number three, if you have faith in Christ, that is greater than the lies and the lust that are in the world. Look what he says in 1 John 5, 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Verse 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Again, we can't develop this, but let me mention two areas. A regenerate believer ultimately does not fall to the lie of Satan. Will ultimately not fall to the lie of Satan. John said, many antichrists have gone out into the world. Some have followed them who were originally with us. But he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. They'd never been experienced the regenerating grace of God. If they had been of us, they, wouldn't have, they would have remained with us, but they went out so it would be shown that they are not all of us. Ultimately, a regenerate believer will not fall to a lie of Satan about a false view of Christ and of the gospel. If someone does, then it simply means that they are evidencing that they have never experienced the regenerating work of God. It also means they will resist Satan's system of deception and lust in this world. Look what he says in chapter 2 just above that. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is not in him. If a believer who is regenerate decides to pursue the things of the world, their conscience will be pained with arrows by God and receive his discipline. If someone can claim Christ and totally embrace this world, world's values, the world's system, the world's worldview, and the world's thinking, then they give no evidence, regardless of what is said, of being a regenerate believer. But a believer finds ourselves strenuously as we grow in Christ to be more separate from the things of this world. We're in the world, we love the people in the world, we want God to be glorified and so forth, but there is a strange detachment from this world that only increases. We are strangers and sojourners. Number four, you'll have a deep love, trust, and love for Scripture that directs you in righteousness and protects you from error. Let me put it very simply, a regenerate person wants to read the Bible A regenerate person wants to read the Bible. Again, that desire can be stronger or weaker at different times, but basic to our life who know him is that we we want to hear him speak and respond. A believer wants to read the Bible because God's character is revealed there, because they uniquely hear the voice of God there. They hear my voice and they follow me. This could be said over and over. 
Peter said, Lauren, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's what a believer says, a born-again believer. Like newborn babes, we long for it if we have tasted the kindness of God. Lastly, and I'll mention this, you experience and desire communion with God through Christ and by the Spirit that is the source of your spiritual life and joy. That's what it means to be a regenerate believer. It's a sovereign work of God. He does it through the instrumentality of the Word. It is a permanent work of God. If someone is born again, they're never unborn. They are permanently a child of God. They will desire to know Him and live in fellowship with Him and His people and follow His Word. Well, that was a jet tour of the doctrine of regeneration. I pray that you know that reality in your own life that you see it, and if you don't, do not deceive yourselves and try to pretend that somehow these things don't apply to you, but apply yourself immediately to Christ and ask Him to do this great work in your heart. And if you sincerely want Him to, He is not deaf to that plea. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your great work of giving us new life. And life, as we learned last week, is accomplished through the death and the resurrection of Your Son, And it is in Him and by the sending of the Spirit and our union with Him that we may walk in newness of life. May we rejoice in these great truths and seek and endeavor more and more in our lives to display them and to grow in this great reality of the life and the grace that we've received from Him and from You. And I pray, Lord, if this reality is not true, and I am almost certain that it is not true of everyone in this room, that you would awaken them to this reality, that you would convict them of their need to this very day turn to Christ and to receive from you forgiveness of sin and life in your precious name. We pray these things in the name of Christ who has released us from our sin. Amen.